0: Gresham College presents, How to Innovate, What to Regulate, Achieving Real Change on the Road to Long Finance, Part 1, Introduction, by Professor Michael Minelli, Chairman ZN Group. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2013 Long Finance Spring Conference. Since Long Finance and the London Accord began back in 2005, we've had over 200 events, all free to the public but the Spring and Autumn Conferences are special as we meet in a large group for half a day and explore one topic in particular. And these conferences especially try to meet two of our four objectives to expand frontiers and build a sense of community. I actually worked on strategic planning in this building back in the 1980s when it was the General Post Office. So I would like to open with a thanks to Matt Hale, Kagan Lovely and Maureen Murphy and their colleagues at the Bank of America Merrill Lynch for hosting our conference a third time here in these now much lovelier premises. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our other sponsors, the Gresham College and the City of London Corporation, whose generosity we also appreciate. Now we began Long Finance with a question, when would we know our financial system is working? Today we are going to attempt to explore simultaneously some of the expanding frontiers of innovation with some of the restricting boundaries of regulation. This tension is an essential part of the financial system. And I'd like to turn for a minute to look first at innovation. Now, without technological change, advancement in productivity, and therefore GDP, would be limited to increasing labor and material productivity, which are finite sources of improvement. And Joseph Schumpeter, uh, initiated in 1942, evolutionary economics with his concept of creative destruction. Creative destruction means simply that markets create new things through innovation that must displace existing things. To Schumpeter, entrepreneurial innovation sustained long-term economic growth while simultaneously destroying the value of established companies that enjoyed some degree of monopoly power. Schumpeter tried to define innovation, this is his definition here, but he sort of winds up seeing all change as potential innovation. Numerous people have tried to distinguish invention from innovation. Invention is having a great idea that might be practical, but innovation is introducing it to the world. Of course we then find ourselves having to distinguish between unique innovations, virtually unique innovations, revolutionary innovations, virtually revolutionary innovations, and so on. Or just bog-standard improvements. As Oscar Wilde said, imagination is imitative. The real innovation lies in criticism. And that execution matters more than invention. Now for OECD statisticians, nothing is an innovation until people buy it. Innovation is about making a difference in the marketplace. New inventions that aren't commercialized aren't innovations to them. If a new invention is commercialized but unsuccessfully, it isn't a lasting innovation. If one company is superior to its competitors, that's because it is innovative. If one company fails, that's because it wasn't innovative enough. Thus, every commercial success is an innovation. Every novel wrapper for a burger, every new phone answering phrase, every inventive internet click function, every new fashion accessory. Momofuku Ando, inventor of the pot noodles, is as important as Thomas Edison. So this conflation of innovation with success is especially surprising as it's long been recognized that failure is an important part of learning and innovating. George Chapman, back in the 16th century, said that pure innovation is more gross than error. And in the past century, it was Woody Allen who quipped, if you're not failing every now and again, it's a sign you're not doing anything very innovative. Another question of interest came up in preparing for today amongst the speakers. Can we distinguish good financial innovation from bad? I wonder if bad financial innovation can be spotted when people make money far too easily. CDOs, payment protection insurance, endowment mortgages perhaps. We also look to where is the fountain of innovation. To quote The Economist on Robert Solow's two seminal papers on growth in 56 and 57, invention, innovation, and ingenuity were all exogenous influences to technological progress. So many economists do find the nature of money exogenous to economics. So perhaps ignoring the awkward question on the source of innovation isn't really that surprising. Managing innovation is troublesome. Large R&D processes in industry are certainly not conducive uh, to success. As this slide slide indicates, large R&D processes in government are worse, and I speak as someone who was helping manage about 40% of UK government research back in the 1990s. Government and professional commentators aren't particularly bad at spotting winners. William Sheridan, in his delightful book, The Fortune Sellers, tears apart any structured ability of government or private futurologists to spot winners in science and technology. There are two um, religious sects on innovation. I would categorize them as top-down versus bottom-up. In the top-down sect, policy and planning lead to new innovations. In the bottom-up sect, you have no idea from where the next big idea will come. But large organizations are not good at innovation the top-down variety because it means that they actually have to manage processes that are revolutionary, while bottom-up innovation means headquarters has no idea from which wild quarter the next big innovation will arrive, which is a very uncomfortable situation. And of all the firms in the ecosystem, by far the ones that really keep innovation going, as bacteria, fungi, beetles, and worms do in biological ecosystems, it's the little folk who matter. But governments are particularly bad at dealing with lots of little firms when they think one big champion will do. Terence Keeley, who's now Vice-Chancellor at the University of Buckingham, set out three economic laws of funding civil R&D. He concludes that public sector research displaces private sector research as a multiple. Thus, private sector research is to be preferred. The paucity of government funding historically for financial R&D until very recently might be why finance has been so innovative and also why financial R&D expenditure statistics are so small it doesn't get recorded for tax purposes. Some of the recent uh, government interest in financial R&D, I might note the Technology Strategy Board, may well take our industry down the same policy route that led to defunct electronics, computing, and aerospace industries in the UK. Let's turn to regulation. Standards and regulation play an enormous role in innovation. This diagram's vertical axis represents vertical product differentiation, i.e. the higher up the diagram, the greater the performance or functionality. The horizontal axis represents horizontal differentiation. So points along a horizontal line in this diagram represent products of different design and configuration, but roughly comparable functionality. And product and service innovations can fill this space. Starting at point A on the top left, A big innovation opens up a new area of technological space, so new and revolutionary that people can only find horizontal differentiation for the moment. In B, two subsequent innovations, drawing on the basic standard, develop in two orthogonal directions. In C, each of these innovations spawns two further ones. The forces of product innovation build this rich canopy of competing products and services of differing technological characteristics. Uh, which you can see in D. Without standards, this tree develops rather evenly across the canopy, but tremendous effort is expended, opportunities for economies of scale are missed, and innovation is duplicated. If we see an area where we have sort of patents or standard clustering, the standards and pseudo-standards encourage more rapid functionality development, but We don't know at what cost or what missed opportunities. Too early standardization leaves the space unexplored. Too late leads to much wasted effort filling the space. And finally, with some kind of proprietary or de facto standard that approaches a monopoly, large areas of the innovation space remain unexplored, and greater confidence in such a standard by consumers and producers can lead to rapid advance, but equally monopoly rents or technology lock-in. The final point I'd like to make is if evolution applies to markets then perhaps the biggest innovation policy is to encourage biodiversity in finance. Now biodiversity here means not leaping too early with standards and regulations. It means lowering risk and increasing reward for entrepreneurs. Improved biodiversity also means improved infrastructure quality, for example, through universally improved education. Most importantly, though, biodiversity means encouraging competition so that one type of firm does not unnaturally predominate. Biodiversity requires aggressive anti-monopolies enforcement. Encouragingly, the new Financial Conduct Authority, unlike its predecessor, the FSA, is charged with encouraging competition 14 years after Andrew Tyree's 1999 paper, Leviathan at Large, warning of the dangers of too much concentration in banking, let alone audit or credit ratings. And finally, from cybernetics, I would add Ashby's law of requisite variety to our discussion. Ashby's law states that for appropriate regulation, the variety in the regulator must be equal to or greater than the variety in the system being regulated, or to be a little bit more succinct, the greater the variety in a system, the more regulation will reduce it. So significant government direction inevitably reduces variety. So in summary, today, I'm hoping that we touch on some of these themes, defining innovation, sorting out the good from the bad, learning from failure, setting out roles for governments and standards, encouraging diversity and competition. A previous long finance speaker, Professor Raj Persaud, pointed out a hard truth back in 2006. He said, no matter how hard you're prepared to work, and I'm sure you're all very industrious individuals, there are millions of people in India and China willing to work harder than you for about a 10th of the pay. So as a national economy, for us to be competitive in the future, we can't rely on resources and we can't rely on hard work. What are we going to rely on? We're going to have to rely on innovation, being different and being creative. And that need for innovation certainly applies to finance in London today. So hopefully I've provided you with a bit of an amuse gueule for today's agenda. We're following our usual format of two speakers, one long and one short each followed by a panel. On each panel, I'll ask the panelists to make one big point in two minutes before we move to open discussions with you, the Long Finance community. You already have information on the speakers, so with no further ado, I'd like to ask our keynote speaker, Professor Thurston Beck, who has come over from Tilburg today to address us and challenge our panel on financial innovation, the bright and dark sides. Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.